sing a lot. I get songs stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. I walk around my apartment. I sing whatever the last song I heard was. Mm-hmm. Just how I roll. Mm-hmm. And uh, since we've been doing all this research, I keep getting Beatles slash Beatles-esque songs oh, stuck in my head. Definitely. All the time. I'm pretty sure I had What Is Life stuck in my head for two straight weeks. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not complaining. But I have a tendency to get like the really catchy earworms uh-huh. stuck in my head. And I've oh, noticed no, one. <laughs> I've noticed a, a a common thread in the Beatles songs. Yes, we have discussed this. Where and- where they tend to like to shout and then sing. For example, hey, you've got to hide your love away. Or help. I need somebody help. Not just anybody. Or then Paul even took it when he was with oh, Wings yeah. with Jet. So it's gotten to the point in my household where now we're just walking around and we'll just say anything and we'll see what happens after it. So like I'll be like, help. Hey, I need somebody. <laughs> we need to do some mashups now. Yeah. Like I I'm legit at the point in my life where I'm like, how? do i get into mashups how do i start doing these <laughs> like i want to be that 45 year old woman djing at the club making mashups and they're like just it's what all beatles songs it's like all the kids are walking like what is this and they're like they call it mashups apparently it was really big in the aughts she's bringing it back she's been like yeah i like these and i'll be like man i miss girl talk <laughs> <laughs> welcome to rock candy hi your weekly podcast bringing you sweet treats from the world of the Beatles. Ugh, for the next several weeks. <laughs> well, no, only uh, four more weeks. After this, three weeks. Yeah, after this, three weeks. So it depends on how you are counting. But yes, it's a lot of Beatles. It's a lot of Beatles. But I mean, it has been fun and enlightening. Yes. And I feel like I have learned a lot. And I'm learning a lot. And I'm learning a lot about human behavior. Yeah. I feel like doing a lot of this because you come in with these preconceived notions about each beetle mm-hmm. and then like they change a little bit as you read another beetle story and then they change again when you read that beetle story i kind of hope that people are coming into this kind of the same way because i feel like a lot of people have preconceived ideas of what the Beatles were like you mean everybody thinks ringo was not a good musician right or like (laughs) everyone thinks that um you know george was the quiet one he wasn't quiet it's just the other two railroaded him all the time oh my god so i mean doing these has changed my perspective on the Beatles as individuals oh yeah so i hope it does the same thing for others and don't just put these guys on pedestals because they were kind of the first to do whatever oh yeah no kind of just fucking look at them as regular people because they were just regular people yeah that were really thrown into a crazy circumstance and not a whole lot of people get to experience so they were the first to be like well how the fuck do we handle this and they didn't handle it well oh no (laughs) that's also what i need you guys to get out of this is none of them handled this well not at all not at all but then again like they had no precedent to look on to figure out okay we're supposed to do this now and we're supposed to do this and this is how i handle this question and this is how i handle this throng of people yeah you know so 
this is changing everybody's perspectives. Yeah. And on not the Beatles, only that, I hope. But I feel like every Beatle handled it differently. Yeah. And I'm going to say right now. We figured that out pretty early on. Yes. That they all handled it very differently. I, you might change my mind with John, but I don't think you're going to. I think Paul handled it the best. Huh. I think Paul had the easiest time. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with you. At least when it comes to like when they were in the Beatles oh, yeah, and yeah, Beatlemania yeah. was going nuts, mm-hmm. he was the one that liked it. Whereas everyone else was like, not my it. favorite. I'll get into it. I don't know how much he liked it, liked it, but he I just handle he, it. He knew how to handle it. Okay. Paul is an interesting human. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I came into this being like, he's a sociopath. And I'm like, yeah, you were, you were, you were. Gone for him I to be a sociopath, but you know what? Now I'm like, I think he's just really British. Yeah, <laughs> could be. No offense to our British fans, I do not think you're sociopaths, but like, there's very much like this stiff upper lip, colder, especially yeah. with older generations, especially from Northern England. Yeah, I learned a lot. Yeah, um, and I, I yeah, you know what? Every, uh, Paul and has also, a fun and interesting story for sure. And also, anytime somebody says stiff upper lip, I have ACDC in my head going, stiff upper lip! <laughs> yeah. So now that's in my head. Cool. Jet! Stiff upper lip! Mashup! It's going to be our first one, guys. I'm so excited. Okay. And... Before we get into the story, I want to tell you about beers and ciders that we're drinking. Enjoying our lives right now. Uh, I am sucking down some, (laughs) I actually really like this, some delicious pineapple creamsicle, which is a cream cream ale with pineapple and vanilla. It sounds, the description sounds good, but like creamsicle just instantly makes me dry heat. I initially was like, too, and then I saw it was a cream or a cream ale and I'm like, well, wait, hold on. This isn't a pineapple. This is an IPA milkshake. Mm-hmm. So let's. Pineapple is also. IPA milkshake. Yeah. A no. very chancy flavor for me oh, sometimes. You, you throw pineapple in anything. I'm here for mm. it. Fucking I love la- pineapple. I like eating pineapple. Mm-hmm. I love it. But sometimes the flavoring is just so overpowering. I can't deal with it. And I will say it is from me and Max Bluey. Actually, it's me and Max Brew Works. Me and Max Blue Works, uh, it's just a local it to is. us. It's up in, is it Lake George? It is Glens Lake Falls. Oh, it's Glens Falls. It is Glens Falls. Right. Either way, it is up We did north. go there once and we were quite drunk. It's from Me and Max. Now follow me here. Me and Max. Uh-huh. Max. Maxwell. Maxwell Silver's Hammer. Paul McCartney song off the Abbey Road album. Sure. So it fits. That's your three point shot. Yes. Of a yes. <laughs> that's your three point basketball. Shot. <laughs> that's my yeah. six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Three Paul point McCartney. shot. Paul McCartney. Fucking getting there. See, now that we don't automatically buy thematic beers, I like just seeing how I can weave this into being. Yeah, but yeah, I'm not drinking that. No, you're not. I am drinking, uh, tuned up. Oh. By Stowe Ciders. Because you got to tune up your amps, bitch. Yeah. And in some cases in this story, you'll discover they had to tune down the amp. Oh. But you're going to buckle Not up and put in those to amps one. to 11. Oh, no. Putting those amps to unplug. 
but you'll you'll hear about that soon right. enough. So let me dig into the matter at hand. However, beforehand, I am going to cite my source begrudgingly. Oh, uh, <laughs> you uh, you've heard me bitch about this oh, book yeah, for a month. Yeah, you said it was really bad. <sighs> it's okay. It's just boring. Okay, so I am. Dry. I have been reading Paul McCartney: The Life by Philip Norman, which, in pa- upon all of my research, seemed to be kind of like the most highly regarded Paul McCartney biography. Okay, so I got it. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, does Philip Norman like to talk about things that I don't give a shit about, <laughs> like dedicating an entire chapter to the house that Paul bought? I mean, wow. an entire chapter to a fucking house. I mean, Paul McCartney has a very long and storied life and career. But you know do what you I really, really want to know? Do you really need to dedicate an entire chapter to his fucking house? And he tends to go on tangents about, like, other side characters that don't really matter. Yeah. Like a kid that he knew in grade school. He'll talk about him for three paragraphs. And I'm like, this kid is not coming back into the picture. I don't really care. The thing is, like... So Philip Norman, if you need to know, he did write, um, fuck, I think it was Shout, which was a Beatles book, and he really dismissed Paul McCartney's contributions. And then he also wrote John Lennon, The Life, uh huh, which is, I think, one of the books that you got. And I was like, don't read it. Oh yeah, that's still on my <laughs> don't read list. it. Maybe you I won't like it. Um, you have I was, other books to read. Because I was looking for something that was just like a general overview of his entire life that was just middle of the road opinion wise. This is not so, middle of the road. This like goes into things that maybe some people are really into. And I do say I do kind of like the fact that at least in the Beatles years, he doesn't really focus too much on Beatles stuff. He does focus more on Paul stuff, which is great. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. So bonus points there. However, um, I bought another book and I'm going to read that one for the next episode because I'm like, I can't. And I actually got to the point where I was just looking up interviews and articles because I can't read this dry shit. At one point, because Jeremy and I are that couple that reads in bed before we go to sleep. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there trying to read the book. And then, like, my dog's, like, trying to grab his toy. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? And the cats are coming in and out. And I'm like, oh, you want pets? <laughs> and at one point, Jeremy looks at me and he says, you really don't want to read this book, do you? And I'm like, what? And he's like, you are paying way more attention to whatever the fuck the animals are doing than anything in this book. And I'm like, yeah, this book sucks. Yeah. I don't like it. It's not for me. I don't want to say it's a bad book. Yeah. It is not for me. If you don't like, you know, dry toast with no butter, do not read this book. But I did get at least like some flavor for my story in it because he does interview people within Paul's life. Well, yeah, that's good. No, I, it wasn't completely useless. Yeah. This this is your two-star review for this Oh, it's book. A, I would say two. <laughs> I, I, I guess 2.5 because I did get information from it. But it's a slog. But you were flipping through those pages pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking for, like, pertinent information. Yeah. Answers to questions only. Right. <laughs> anyway, so now that you've gotten my lengthy review of this book that you didn't <laughs> ask for, let me actually tell you the story about Paul McCartney. All right. <laughs> he is... One half of the legendary Lennon-McCartney duo, seen by many as the ultimate songwriting team. And even beyond his years in the Beatles, he continued to write tunes that have gone down as classics and standards in the American Songbook. But this is where our Beatles talk will start to take a turn from our previous two members. Paul and John are very much held in the highest regard of singer-songwriters. Yeah. 
we can't go into this saying they were ever underestimated. From day one, they were loved. Correct. Mm. And I'm not going to try to take that away from Paul in these episodes. He deserves those accolades for sure. But it's interesting to look at him and how he got there. It's not just musical talent. He had a way about him, an ability to see where trends were going and to know what paths and other musicians to follow. Paul McCartney is a creative, yes, no doubt, but he never stops looking at things from a business perspective either, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. However, legends aren't born that way. It's years of nurture and experiences that build up the person we know them as, and Paul's story is no less interesting than any of the others. On June 18th, 1942, within the walls of Walton Hospital in Liverpool, England, Mary McCartney gave birth to her first son, James Paul McCartney, named after his father. Who was Paul's on- not his real name? No. Just wait, sweetheart. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Oh, no. He's named after his father, who was unfortunately absent from the birth due to obligations he had as a firefighter in World War II. Oh. Well, yeah. that's an important job. Yeah. He's, you know what? understandably absent yeah, got it it's fine got totally it totally fine got it senior paul mccartney <laughs> upon delivery mary's son was in a state of asphyxia Whoa. and doctors were unsure if he would make it no shit did yeah. he have like the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck or uh, something? he just came out like <laughs> blue Sorry. colored like blue colored he just came out like blue and not breathing Wow. So might, I don't know if it was exactly like fluid that may have gotten uh, in his lungs. Yeah. Probably. But yeah, he, it, it was, I read all about it and it was science and I, I kind of glossed glazed over. over. My <laughs> eyes glazed over and I'm like, what? What's the cat doing? <laughs> Shh, baby. <laughs> the three pages of science he had to include in this, I may have glossed over. As a devout Catholic, Mary could do nothing but pray with the midwife while the doctors worked tirelessly to eventually bring her son back from the brink of death into a normal human flesh color. <laughs> it's not blue anymore. I'm just picturing we him being pink. a zombie baby until they finally breathe life back into him. He's like, oh, he's normal now. He's going to be just fine. <laughs> the success of his parents' relationship surprised many as Jim was a Protestant. And most of the time, especially back in those days, that pairing did not jive. Jeez, this is exactly what Henry VIII was like. Nah, bitch. Henry VIII, I am, I am. He is. <laughs> See, we already mentioned Hermits, Peter Her- Noon and Hermit's Hermits. Uh, Herman's Hermit. There we go. God. We're on fire with these Herman Hermits references. <laughs> oh, drink. Yay. But while Mary held her close Catholic views, Jim was more agnostic, and they pretty much raised their kids without religion, like they did the baptism, but that was just about hey, it. Hey, go Jim. Right? And so there really wasn't a lot to argue about. Cool. Yeah. And despite naming their son after his father, Mary and Jim decided early on that they wanted to avoid the confusion when male would come to the house for James, and therefore always referred to their junior as Paul. So why go to all maybe, the effort to name your kid after Maybe your just don't yeah, fucking name I, your kid a junior. Yeah, nope. No idea. Why? Why? But as strange as that is. Yeah. <laughs> a year and a half later is when they would oh welcome God, Paul's tell. little don't. brother, Peter Michael McCartney, who would always be known as Michael or Mike, even though there is no one in the house named Peter. I never understood this. Yep. I never understood why people go 
by their with, middle names. By their middle names. Then why like, are you even giving them a middle name? Just give them the name you want to give them. Like, if the kid is like, yeah, I don't like my first name. I want to go by my middle name. That right. makes sense. But, yeah. like, your parents fucking named you. Mm-hmm. And then they call you something completely different. Not even a nickname. No. Nope. <laughs> just your middle name. Just your middle name. What is the point? Unlike Ringo, it, he was not Lil, Lil James or Lil Jimmy. He wasn't a kid. jingle dingle. He was oh, <laughs> jingle dingle. No, he was a pingle dingle. Oh. <laughs> Even better. Poggle doggle. <laughs> that was their family pet's name. The two boys would grow up together and be as thick as thieves. Michael was the more uninhibited of the two and would tend to get the flat hand of his father more often than his older brother. Give him the flat hand. Gave him the flat hand a lot. More than anything, though. Many take this as an early indication of Paul's ability to talk his way out of any situation. Yeah, he seems like that kind of guy. Oh, he's that kind of guy. In elementary school, it was discovered that Paul was left-handed, like we discussed with Ringo. Yeah. and Fucking lefties. Yeah, lefties. Yeah, lefties. Represent. I'm not a true lefty, but it's fine. You're lefty enough. I'm lefty enough. Look, you write with your left hand. That counts as a lefty. And while back then that would cost you a paddling, mm-hmm. Joseph Williams' primary really didn't roll that way. So Paul was actually left alone to his own devices where he honed in on perfect penmanship as well as fine artistic abilities. That is very interesting. Right? Because most places back then would force you to write right-handed. Right? Even my grandmother, she was left-handed and she went to public school in America and they <laughs> made her write right-handed. Yeah, I think Paul just got lucky. Or yeah. maybe he talked his way out of it. Who fucking knows? I don't know. Uh, you really don't want to make me right, right-handed. It just won't be quite as but, nice. So maybe you should but look at my handwriting. Hand. It has a lovely structure. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Good job. Firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Oh, coming in hot, guys. <laughs> but his skills didn't stop at visual. Many noticed early on that he possessed a strong and clear singing voice. Oh. And on top of that, he had an instinct for the harmony parts and would pick them up effortlessly, which would That's very helpful later mm-hmm. on in his mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jim had spent his younger years playing jazz in a bunch of bands. And needless to say, he was chuffed as puffs that his <laughs> oldest son picked up a love for music similar to his own and wanted to nurture that. And therefore, he put his son in private piano lessons. Because that's every kid's dream. I mean, if your kid has a knack for music, piano is a good place to start. Yeah, it's, it's pretty basic. But these didn't last long. Apparently, Paul didn't like having to practice because it just felt like more, more homework because it is more homework. And he complained that the teacher's house smelled like old people. <laughs> right? I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. If that's not a good excuse to stop, I don't know what is. There is none. So Jim took it casually into his own hands and would play the house piano for Paul and kind of just like be like, these are the chords I'm hitting while he would strike them. Uh-huh. Probably assisting in Paul's development for a keen ear in music. And for the next several years, Paul would dabble and find joy in listening and playing music by himself. My grandmother used to do the same thing. She knew how to play like two different songs on the piano. And when I was little, I loved it when she played those yeah. two songs. So I'd always be like, grandma or Grammy. Sorry. I called sorry, Grammy. Grammy. Um, would you play those songs? And she would be like, oh, fine. Oh. <laughs> and she would play them. <laughs> like, like, yay. 
but I had absolutely no interest in figuring out how she played them or what the notes were. I'm just like, you do it. You do it. I don't want to. You do it. Classic. Like another beetle we've discussed, Paul had done quite well on his 11 plus exam. Mm. Look at him and little George. Little George and him. Smart. (laughs) It landed him a spot in the Liverpool Institute. Oh, I've heard this before. Mm, Yeah, where we heard this story. (laughs) However, academia just wasn't it for him. It's not that he wasn't a very bright student. It's just he. Well, he passed his 11 plus. I know, right? Yeah. Clearly chuffed. He's proper chuffed and a smart chap. (laughs) A smart chap. He just couldn't care less. He had a few teachers that would call him out as someone who relied much more on his charisma to get him through than actually putting in the work. Well, when you have the charisma, then you just, you know, rely on that mostly. I I fucking would. I think I probably do. I think I do. I rely on the alcohol. Yeah, I think I mostly rely on booze. Yeah. That's fine. But it's not like the school was encouraging any of his creative outlets, like art or music. They didn't even have a guitar program. Seriously, they really didn't have a lot going on there. They did have a music teacher that many of his fellow schoolmates really respected, but Paul wrote him off, finding his lessons weren't really worth the attention. Yeah. Still, though, he pursued his passion for playing, and for his 13th birthday, Jim gifted Paul a trumpet, the same instrument he learned to play in his band before the war. His son did his best to pick it up by ear, but it would be a short-lived journey for him, as rock and roll was on the horizon, where guitars ruled and trumpets drooled. I I did read which that I he... mean, like hold up spit valve, and like kind of makes it accurate, right? What guitars rule and trumpets? Yes. Drool. See ah, what I did there? I get it. I made a joke. God damn it! Yeah. I wrote it in my notes. Let me have this. <laughs> I I did read that after he got into the Quarrymen. I think he did a pretty rousing rendition of "When the Saints Go Marching In." I mean, if that's not gonna make your panties drop, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, know what will. <laughs> you, no woman on this planet at any point in time has ever said you know that trumpet player is really cute hold up you know they have now right like you said that and automatically i'm sure five thousand women i'm sure somebody in the audience of a mighty mighty boss tones show you've never been to a ska show at some point was like you know that trumpet player yeah i bet he hangs dong I don't know. I'm looking at the trombone player. He probably really hangs dong. <laughs> he does that as soon as he comes. <laughs> nice. Don't fuck with the horn section, but also fuck, fuck the, with horn the horn section. section. Wait, don't fuck with the horn section. But fuck the horn section. The school itself wasn't artistically encouraging. Friends he made within the institution sure would be, namely a boy who rode the bus with him daily, George Harrison. That is just the most adorable thing. Right? I'm just picturing the two of them in their schoolboy uniform sitting on the bus with their feet dangling, just going like, oh my god, I played a show last night. Oh my god, they were like 15. (laughs) (laughs) But I like to picture it like they're like like, seven. They were more like, oh my god, I played a show last night. (laughs) Covered in pimples. (laughs) 
That was Paul and George at this time. Pizza faces and braces everywhere. And they're just, they did not have braces. They, they did not at all. They did not have braces. I'm not even saying because it was the 50s. I'm saying because it's England. It's England. They didn't have braces. Again, much love to England. You guys totally have braces now. <laughs> As discussed last week, even though there was a year difference, the two closely bonded over their love of music, especially that of Elvis. Hmm. Like people would say decades later about the Beatles, when they were introduced to Elvis, everything changed in their minds, and the possibility of rock and roll became real. He wasn't Paul's only idol. He also fell in love with the songs and performances of Little Richard. Mm -hmm. On the schoolyard, he entertained his classmates with impressions of both musicians, singing the low, controlled mumbles of Elvis, and counterbalancing it with the high, energetic pitch screams of Little Richard. Woo! (laughs) And now I would at, have loved to see that. But like if you look at Paul's body of work, you're like, yeah. Yeah. Clearly this like it runs the range between the two. Yeah, because he he does both mm-hmm. in his songs. Like it's it's just impressive cuz I think about um Oh Darling where he does like all the Hoo-s! and I'm like, "Oh yeah, no, that's Little Richard. Yeah. You took that from Little Richard. You're welcome." Yeah. Paul. But I I think he thanks Little Richard for it. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Paul credit. I think he always gives influences their due. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. But it wouldn't be enough just to imitate his idols. When George told Paul of his father's rock and roll influence and guitar playing ability, Paul felt pretty lame bringing to the table. We'll all play the trumpet. <laughs> so he asked. So impressive. I'll play the trumpet. You, do you know when the saints come marching in? <laughs> I'll make all the ladies' panties drop. <laughs> so he asked his dad if he could trade it in for a guitar. Now, most dads would have been against their sons turning from jazz to rock and roll. But the memory of how his elders viewed jazz and how it was a waste of time was still pretty fresh in his mind. Because, I mean, think about it, like the 30s and 40s, people were like, don't play that nasty jazz music. And now they're like, play that nasty jazz music. Don't play that stupid rock and roll. Play that nasty jazz. Mm, Play that nasty jazz, white boy. (laughs) So he supported his son when the trumpet came back as a Zenith acoustic guitar. Oh. Paul looked to his friends to help him learn, but immediately realized his first roadblock. The classic lefty issue. Yeah, it's, it is an issue. Because if I did play guitar, I would play left-handed. Of course. So. Yeah. And I have tried to play right-handed. Oh. It doesn't work because you tears. are a lefty. Ended oh. in tears. That was also my father's fault. But well, still. Yeah, your dad. <laughs> my dad. Brad dad. Yeah. Well, he took to solving it in the classic lefty way. After seeing a photo of country musician Slim Whitman holding his guitar as a left-handed player, Paul copied what he was doing. But, of course, then realized that all the strings were backwards. So then he had to restring it. Yeah. That's what Kurt Cobain did, too. That's, yep. Everybody. Everybody. Every left-handed got shafted. Because I feel like most lefties don't realize, like, you're a lefty. You need to get a left-handed guitar. I don't think they were around as much back then. But oh, like, not at even all. Even nowadays, I feel well, like, like lefties still grab it. And they're like, hey, this is... Oh. I mean, a lot of lefties can play it right-handed. And it's it doesn't feel super weird and awkward. Yeah. Um, but you also, you can play a right-handed guitar. You just have to restring it. Right. That's fine. fine. Same thing. You're just going to hit all the fucking knobs on it. Whatever. Knob time. Knob knocking. (laughs) Knocking knobs. (laughs) 
The second half of 1956 would go on to change 14-year-old Paul's life forever. He and his brother Michael had noticed their mother was acting a bit strange. She was often in pain, though she would try to hide it with her cheerful personality. One time, Mike found her lying in bed, clutching a crucifix and weeping. No! She's in so much pain. Lady! After dealing with months of blinding pain, Jim finally convinced Mary to go to the doctor. I'm sorry, she hasn't gone to the doctor yet? Mm Mm-mm. Lady. And she's a midwife. Like, she... Yeah. She's into medicine. Girl. But I think she knew. Sometimes you know your body's failing. And I don't think she and wanted to... And didn't want to face it. Yeah. But, like, you can't... Uh, you should for your family. I don't know. 40s Catholic or 50s Catholic. I got nothing. This yeah. This is all I could bring you to the table. You didn't talk about anything no. if you were a catholic in the 50s irish catholic in the 50s <sighs> yeah anyway so she goes to she goes to the doctor who discovered she was suffering from breast cancer and as mary herself in medicine knows the diagnosis is diagnosis was basically a death sentence they immediately got her in for a mastectomy, but during the surgery, they discovered just how very much the cancer had spread. Yeah, if you had gone earlier. Yeah. But again, the 50s, like, nobody thinks about it that way. Right. There was nothing they could do. She was dying. Throughout all of this, the boys were never made aware that their mother had cancer or even that she was quickly approaching the end of nope. her life. Nope. That's not how you do it. <laughs> nope. I like how this whole section, you're like, wrong. 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 Nope. Wrong. <laughs> Everybody handled all of this wrong. I can't check any of these boxes because you're doing all of it wrong. (laughs) But Paul was no fool. After seeing how much blood his mother lost on her sheets one time, he knew something was up. From what? I don't know. Oh, my God. Was it hemorrhaging? Who fucking... That's horrible. I know. Mary received her last rites and slipped into a coma. She passed away on October 31st, 1956. That is so traumatic. I know. Like, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to fault them for the way it was handled because it's 1956. Like, this this is what people did. And again, this is England, Irish Catholic, England, Irish Catholic. I get it. But, like, this, the amount of trauma that this caused everybody could have been lessened. Or avoided? I don't think it could have been avoided completely because oh. like I mean, death losing, death. just losing a parent when you are in your teens is traumatic, period. Doesn't matter how it happens. And then this could have been lessons. Like, even if she went to the doctor months before and mm-hmm. they were like, this is just even stage three. Right. Or this, you know, you, it, even if it's early stage four. Well, she could have saved herself some pain. She could have saved, she could have given herself a couple extra months. She could have at least, and this sucks to say, she could have at least been drugged up for a longer amount of time so it wasn't so traumatic because she was in excruciating pain Mm -hmm. the whole time. And it's sad, too, because what she says towards the end of her life is her biggest regret is the fact she won't get to see her sons grow up. I know. It's sad. It, It really, it's, it's a... It's a fucking tragedy. Especially because look what her son became. I know. Like, it's, I feel really bad, you know? Sucks. And like Mary and Jim had a beautiful relationship. Mary seemed like a great mom. She's always encouraging of her sons. Like it just, you know, you always got to take the good ones, don't you? Yeah. 
And yet, so many douchebags are still alive. Yep. Jim, at this point, had to step up and become both the father and the mother to his sons. And this is where we see, for the first time, Paul has kind of a weird way of expressing grief. As his mother was the breadwinner working as a midwife, one of the first things he asked after she died was, what are we going to do without her money? Yeah, I mean, I get where he's coming from, but yeah. like, dude, you're like 14. <laughs> and and there are going to be other times where like after someone passes, he says something and you're like, you shouldn't be thinking about that right now. Yeah, or like it just comes across as callous. And like something I've always wondered about is the things that Paul says when he deals with tragic events. Yeah. Let's, I mean, he's not the most tactful. And I can only wonder. I always thought that it was just like a personality trait he was born with. But, you know, maybe it's just better to chalk it up to what do you expect people to say when they're blindsided with tragedy? Right. Also, maybe that's his way of focusing on something tangible that he can fix. Right. That gets him through the grief. I've kind of come to, you know, like, let go of, like, those things. Because in the next episode, I'll talk about how he deals with something. And I'm like, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> you hear it time and time and again, like, especially when it's, like, true crime. And they're like, they reacted weird to that death. And it's like, well, you can't tell Everybody people reacts how to react weird. to death. Everybody reacts differently to a death, especially if it's traumatic. Precisely. So I'm not going to hold it against them. Right. After the passing of his mother, music was the only thing that Paul cared to focus on. Guitar came into his life at exactly the right time. He already began to create songs, one called I've Lost My Little Girl, which was your typical heartbreak jam. Oh, that sounds so grown up for a teenager to write. No, it doesn't. I've lost my little girl. I lost my little girl. That's my like teenage puberty voice. Just voice cracking all over the place. <laughs> Piano stayed in his rotation as well, still without lessons. He would figure out the chord progressions to songs and build around that. He had a natural instinct to play by ear, I'm sure, which was nurtured by Jim in Paul's earlier years. Mm-hmm. Paul began to really blossom as a musician. Playing along with friends as his circle began to consist of many others who were just looking to spend their time jamming in bands. And two of his friends were members of this little skiffle group called the Quarrymen. Oh, I've heard that name before. You might have heard this name before. They're called the Quarrymen. (laughs) They invited him to come watch them play and suggested that they would introduce him to the leader of the band and try to get him into the band with them. When Paul was introduced to the Quarrymen, he recognized the leader of the band right away. A teddy boy that lived in his neighborhood, nearly two years his senior. His name was John Lennon. Because he's the leader of the pack. Yeah. Yes. Fucking teddy boys. I'm sure he was quite intimidating. Oh, he was quaffed hair. He was a rough and tumble young man, so. Snail shoes. Yes, the snail shoes. No, that was John, right? No, that was George. That's right, George. George with his winkle pickers. Anyway, John had a bit of a tough exterior, especially, you know, with that classic teddy boy look. Not the most friendly person and certainly not going to make the first move when it came to meeting new people. Yeah, one could say he had um, a chip on his shoulder. Like an entire fucking bag of Lay's potato <laughs> chips on that wavy Lay's. Just... I'm sorry, he had a crisp on his shoulder for sure. <laughs> Whole newspaper full of crisps. Oh god, that sounds so good. 
Actually, no. Those are chips. Those are chips. Chips are okay. Chips nah. are fries. Crisps are chips. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I was right. I was right. Hold up. I'll eat either. I don't care. Just put fried potatoes in my mouth. Yeah, I'll eat it. I'm not going to be picky. So it's going to be up to Paul to make an impression. To audition, he grabbed a guitar and went into his rendition of Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock with not only a spot on impression of the vocals, but a solid slap bass rhythm. And that was enough to elicit from John a firm look of like, yeah, you'll do. I just think it's so hilarious that John was so critical of everybody that wanted to be in the Quarrymen, but it's like, bro, you're in a high school band. Right. Like, yeah, calm your tits. Yeah, and you'll get into it in the in the oh. John episodes. I'm mm-hmm. I have no doubt. Mm-hmm. But it would be a few months before Paul officially joined. But once he did, things slowly began to change for the Quarrymen. And John always felt he was the superior musician in the group. Of course he did. He, I think that was just John's thing. He always had this air of superiority. He said he was superior in, like, everything that he did. But with the new addition, he found there's a lot he needed to work on. Mm-hmm. He was not as quite as technically sound as Paul was. Well, I'm glad that Paul knocked him down a couple steps. I think John saw Paul not only as a good musician, but someone who was willing to be a teacher. And also somebody who's probably on his level. Yes. Yeah. There's There will be a lot to be said throughout these next few episodes about Paul and John. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he looked to Paul to help him with the more technical aspect of guitar. And it would be through this growth that they would eventually crawl out of the shadow of Skiffle, which like, really at this point was kind of seeing the end of its run. Yeah. And they'd really fall into true rock and roll. And with these two paired together, the music and lyrics improved. They would develop a close working relationship, almost in a way of competition, as their desire to show off to one another. And it brought out the best in them. Oh, yeah. I think that happened throughout the Beatles. Oh. I think even after the Beatles. I think it wasn't so much a songwriting partnership as it was a songwriting competition between the two. Right. And it, it just so happened that it was relatively friendly. Yeah, well, because I think what would happen is one of them would come in and be like, I got the song. And then he'd be like, oh, well, that song's nice, but what if we added this? Yeah. Like, I like that adding, but what about this? Mm, that's nice, but Just constantly trying to one-up each other. And they're so busy doing that that somebody else comes in and is like, hey, I wrote this really good song. And they're like, shut up, go away. <laughs> shut up, George. We're not going <laughs> to play a fucking song. <laughs> pretty much. Aww. That's pretty much what happened. Then Ray goes like, Hi, what's everybody doing? And they're just Can like, I play the drums on this one? <laughs> I'm the drummer. Can I play drums? <laughs> and they're like, maybe. We're fighting right now. Come back later. <laughs> we'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs> Through three weeks later. <laughs> All right, everyone. We finally got this song together. Let's play it. Now we're going to have this person come in on drums, this person come on on keyboards. You, George, get out of here. We don't want your guitar. You know what, Ringo? Never mind. Get out of here. I'll just play the drum beat. I'll do it myself. But, you know, you don't have very good structure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. To be a fly on the wall with the Beatles. No, that's not fair. I think seven times out of ten, it was fine. They got along. Yeah. Up until, like, the White Album. Yeah. You know, I would say eight times out of ten, they got along just fine until the White Album. Yeah. And then 
somehow that's when Eastern mist or West yeah Eastern mysticism came into play, and it's supposed to make you more peaceful, but it just like it just pissed everybody off. It just off. pissed everyone <laughs> off and made everything so are, much worse. We are jumping the gun. <laughs> we are so Let's jumping the back. gun. Bring it back. Bring it back. While John was the leading music guy and Paul was the business guy, he had an innate sense of showmanship coming up with the idea of wearing matching outfits. It was also in his best interest for the band to sound as good as possible, which is why he wanted to bring on his friend, good old School Bus George, to the school band. School Bus George! I had a lot of nicknames for George in this episode. I like maybe Bus Boy George. Ooh, George Bus. George Bus Boy Bus. <laughs> Again, Paul, being the clever Dan that he is, would bring George to Quarryman practices, having him play the part of, oh, I'm just a dedicated follower of the band. (laughs) And he would mention to John his friend's playing ability. But unfortunately, as we learned in the George episodes, the kid was young. Capital Y John was not impressed. Like, Paul's already, like, almost two years younger than John. Yep. So that makes George three years younger than John. Yeah. So, yeah, John wasn't having any part of it. John would refer to George as, quote, that bloody kid hanging around, which took a longer time than one would think for him to shake, which is probably actually played a huge part in George not being taken seriously throughout the Beatles. Oh, yeah. Paul repeatedly said that because George, even though George was not even a year younger than Paul, he was still in a grade below him. Yep. So Paul tended to speak down to him yeah. as if George didn't know as much as Paul knew, even though they were technically the same age. In fact, they wouldn't even hang out within school. They yeah. would only talk on the bus. Yeah. Because they're like, well, we're in different grades. We can't be friends. Right. And that was like the basis of their relationship and lasted throughout their entire lives up until George died. Like, Paul always talked down to George. I have always. so many friends in grades younger than me, and I never like, thought about it that way. Like, all of my friends, all of my good friends were a year above me in yeah. high school and also in college, and yep. nobody talked down to me. It's so weird. It's Like, strange. I just don't understand. <sighs> Whatever. I, I'm assuming it's just, like, maybe a boy. A generational guys. thing? It's gotta be a generational thing. I don't know. I don't know. So finally, Paul saw a perfect opportunity to throw George in the mix when he could play a guitar part for a song by Billy Justice that no one else could. Was this raunchy? Yes. Yes. This was raunchy. Which I love how everybody likes to make a note that like, nobody knew it meant sexy in America. What else does raunchy mean? And I'm like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Also, <laughs> Why is this a note you need to put in my book? Right. Yeah. But I'll see. Also, nobody fucking nobody cares. Nobody fucking cares. It's just Phil. called raunchy, a word that nobody fucking says anymore. <sighs> anyway, John was so impressed that he welcomed the bloody kid aboard. Mm. Thank you, benevolent overlord. Mm-hmm. In summer 1958, the quarry men discovered an electric retailer named Percy Phillips who owned and operated a private recording studio. That is a delightful name. Percy Phillips. Percy Phillips. They decided since buying a a tape recorder and the tapes was going to be way too fucking expensive, that this would be a great way to get their music onto something they could share. And so they made a single containing a cover of Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day and an original by Paul called In Spite of All the Danger. And they did it for 11 shillings. It was pressed to a 10-inch aluminum acetate disc 
and they shared it between each other and their friends. And I want to throw an interesting little fact here because we've shit on George a bit. In Spite of All the Danger is actually credited as a McCartney-Harrison tune. Oh, there you fucking go. There you fucking go. The first original pressed on a vinyl by the Beatles was a Harrison-McCartney. McCartney or Lennon? Harrison-McCartney. Harrison-McCartney. How about that? How about that? They were only able to share their single for a brief time until their pianist, John Duff Lowe, left the band and took the record with him. What? Yeah. How? No. Yeah. This is a, a Harrison McCartney thing. <laughs> How dare you, sir? Harrison McCartney joint. Get the fuck out yeah. of here. Is it yours? It didn't resurface again until 1981 when it was sold to Paul, who made sure it made its way to the Beatles anthology. So you can hear it on the Beatles anthology. Good. Does not belong to the pianist. No. Well, there was there was a reason why it he split. He ended up with it. Like I don't think it was an act of like malicious intent. Malicious intent. So okay. Anyway, unfortunately, a more heartbreaking event would take place that summer. Oh. As John's mother would die in an accident right uh, after recording their single. Yes. He was obviously shattered from this and took time for himself away from the band. Except for Paul, who lost his mother just two years prior and was still feeling it. It became a bond between the two of them, the loss of a mother. They used humor together to deal with it and knew the other would understand. They made a lot of dead mom jokes. And I'm going to tell you right now, as (laughs) someone who has a dead mom, no one else is going to get a dead mom joke unless you lost your mom. Right. And you know what? Even then, I get it. There are plenty of people who have lost their mothers and don't like dead mom jokes, and I get that. But, like, I've got some friends with dead moms, and, like, we make dead mom jokes. There is nothing more funny than making someone really uncomfortable when you tell them your mom's dead. Yeah. Because I have had plenty of times where I've been at work, like, jobs ago. I remember being at work, and there was, like, jobs and jobs ago, and, like, I think Mother's Day or something was coming up. And they're all talking about what they're doing for their moms, and they looked at me like... What are you doing for your mom? I'm like, I'm nothing. She's dead. And they all looked at me with absolute horror. Or when people like ask like, oh, why don't you bring your mom? I'm like, I'd have to like dig her up six feet. And that just seems like so much work, guys. She's been dead for like a long time. Yeah. Like at this point, it's probably like dusty bones. I don't think it's going to make the trip. And I'd have like, to put it all back together. That's that's a lot. That's a lot. But like that's the shit that Paul and John would do. And it's like they would say those things around people who would be horrified. And they could like look at each other and give each other a little wink and be like, you <laughs> yeah. get it. You got a dead mom. Yeah. But there is a bond that can bring you together over a dead parent, yeah. especially at their young ages. Yeah. I mean, I I totally understand making jokes like that just to be able to like deal with it. Oh, yeah. And be able to handle it. Like we still even make dead friend yeah jokes. I mean, yeah you'd especially get it because we have a yeah. dead friend and we like, make dead friend jokes it's kind of funny and our friend our dead friend would think it's fucking hilarious oh god yeah no it's what beth wants she wants us to make that's jokes. the exact joke that we make all the time it's what beth would have wanted <laughs> she's <laughs> like yes please use she's my like, death yes. as an excuse to do what you want but yeah when somebody dies that's close to you there's a lot of people who just use humor and especially british people oh Absolutely. To- I am descended from these people. I'm not I, even. The only thing that has like been passed down generation <laughs> to generation for hundreds of years is our shitty fucking dry witty humor. Yeah. And that's how you deal with absolutely terrible events. Everything. Though. That is how we deal with everything. That's how you deal with grief is you have to fucking laugh. Happy, 
sarcastic, humorous remarks. You sad, sarcastic, sarcastic humorous, humorous remarks. remarks. Everything yeah. is sarcastic and humorous. But yes, this this was a, a very sweet bonding for Paul and John, even though it was over a tragic thing. Right. And I think it's something that kept them together forever. Right. The quarrymen took a bit of a hiatus here, and that's where some of the members just dropped off. So that's pretty much where John, or what's his face, took the <laughs> record and ran. Yeah, and uh, George went and joined the Led Stewart Quartet. Exactly. By the time they got back together a few months later, it was just the Fab Three. George came back, and then there was Paul and John. It was a bit harder for them to get gigs as three guitars, one lead and two rhythm. But they got what they could, mostly at the university that John was attending at that point. And despite still being high school students, Paul and George ended up spending so much time with John on campus, they became honorary students. They also became friends with other students, including Stu Sutcliffe, who John was vying for to get into the band to play bass. Mm -hmm. Paul was the biggest hurdle to get over this to happen. He liked Stu enough, but it felt like having someone... Who couldn't actually play music in the band was a bad idea. It's kind of like when you're, you know, kids and you're like, yeah, we're going to start a band and I'll play bass and you'll play, you'll play guitar and you'll be lead singer. And then you just never actually learn how to play anything. Exactly. Yeah. But everybody else knew how to play something quite well and Stu did not. (laughs) (laughs) He was trying to hate me. Kind of. Kind of. He was kind of half-assing it. Barely. <laughs> he, ev- But Paul eventually lost out in the argument and went on to help Stu learn the basics. But no amount of help seemed to help Stu play any better. Aww. They were still pushing themselves as a band whose, quote, rhythm is in the guitars. Because they still didn't have a drummer. <laughs> However, I don't think it works like that. <laughs> but you, you would think with bass, that should make it an easier sell. Except right. you technically don't have a bassist if you have to unplug their amp so no one hears them. <gasps> No. They had to turn the amp to zero. Oh, Stewie baby. I know. That's but the exact also, opposite like, of Eleven. Yeah, but he was that bad. I think he That's knew. That's bad. He knew. He was like just. And Did I mean, he just have no rhythm at all? I think that was it. But the thing was, John's biggest biggest pull for him, or push, I guess, whatever, was that Stu looked the part yeah it's she was very artistic talk- very fashionable we talked a, a couple episodes ago about how uh good Stu looked mm. Stu was a babe he looked great he was mm. the best looking one yeah like could and did get it oh yeah couldn't play for shit but man <laughs> he could get it could hang dong like the best of them <laughs> after an audition for a pretty big liverpool gig that they didn't get they managed to land themselves an offer to be the backing band for a singer named Johnny Gentle on a long week mm. tour or on a week long tour of Scotland. Paul was a couple weeks out from his exams, but with some smooth persuasion that Paul is so well known to do, he managed to convince Jim that it was a good idea for him to get away for a week. You know, I'm I'm like seventeen. I've been like I'm just working. seventeen, if you know what I mean. I need a break. I really could use a vacation. <laughs> Jim. Right. Jimmy Jam. He's like, I'm still your dad. Call me Jimmy dad. Jam, daddy-o. <laughs> Jimmy Need Jam, Daddy O. Jimmy Jam, Daddy O. Jimmy Jam, Daddy O. Need this. Like, to center myself, okay? It's like, all right. <laughs> he didn't want to miss this opportunity for his band, now known as the Silver Beatles. 
this could be a great chance for them to expand their fan base. However, their performance was so poor on the first night that the promoter was about to send them on the first train back to England. If it wasn't for Mr. Gentle insisting they they just need time, they'll they'll work it out. Like let them have the week. They would have just like gone right out. Yeah, well, you know what? We still hear about the Beatles. You know who we don't hear about? Johnny Gentle. Johnny Gentle. I know. But he was you know what though? He helped. Yeah, he did. He's a nice man. Good for him. He has a spot in history. He does. We're talking about him now, aren't we? We sure are. <laughs> That you know what though, like it may not have been a bad thing if they did miss out on the rest of the tour because they fucking hated it. The crowds were small and unimpressed with the backing band behind Gentle because they all went there to see Johnny Gentle and they thought that the, his backing band sucked. And John got surly right away and took it out on Stu and their new drummer Tommy. Well, Tommy, uh, whatever. Yeah. Blame it on Tommy. That's fine. Tommy was older than the rest of them. So <laughs> and he was John, like, fuck this. <laughs> John would just keep calling him like grandpa. What? He was like 20. He was late 20s. Oh my and John God. John like, what's up, grandpa? John is such an asshole. And Tommy's <laughs> like, I don't need this. <laughs> fuck this band. I don't know why I'm here. But Paul showed ability to make the best out of any situation. He would still chat up with the girls in the audience, mm-hmm. and he would take time to get to know their headliner and ask him questions about his life as a musician. Like, how'd you get your start? How'd you make a record? He's picking him for ideas and just seeing yeah, what's it and like. like. When they went on the road with uh, Helen Shapiro, he was the one who was like, yo, Helen, tell me all about the biz. Yes. Like, for what it's worth, Paul was super business savvy, and yeah. he's like, yeah, it's cool to be out here, but also I want to make sure we're doing the right steps. Right. That's probably why he's still a millionaire today. I think Ringo might be. I'm sure Ringo is. I think they're all millionaires because of Beatles. Yep. Okay. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yep. Oh, okay. I yeah. took the local, but I got there. Anyway, despite any silver linings for the silver Beatles... <laughs> they came back from that feeling more dejected than ever tommy left to go back to a stable job he's like fuck this you know what good for you tommy honestly you did not need to take john's abuse you go work in them factories he did and word of their poor performance made its way to liverpool making it super difficult to get gigs yep paul took his a-level exams failing art but passing english which was enough to send him on the path of teacher training how do you fail art I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> How do you take a test in art? I, I'm sorry. Like, I I went to college for art history. I get it. How do you fail art? I don't know. I, okay. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so he's on the path for teacher training, but he was kind of unsure what he should do because teaching would be a steady job and getting an education would mean a lot to his family. God, can you imagine having Paul McCartney as a teacher? Oh, God, he would be like, oh, no, nope, no. Don't want it. No, don't want it. Like, I feel like a lot of you are like, oh, that'd be really cool. No. No. He would be that that fucking professor who's super, like, nitpicky and controlling because he would be bitter that he never made it. But he would also be overtly jovial in class. Oh, so that one bothered me as much? But, like, you know it's fake. Oh, that one. Yeah, you know it's fake. That one. (laughs) (laughs) that one but at the end of the day was he ready to give up on music 
And then the call came that changed everything. The Hamburg call. Hamburg! Alan Williams, promoter and owner of the club, the Jacaranda, knew of the now known as Beatles as a subpar band of decent artists who he hired to redecorate and paint his club. When I Bruno- think it's the Jacarinda or the oh. Jacarinda. Jacaranda? Jacarinda? Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. I said it wrong. I think I said it wrong all of us ways. are wrong. We're all wrong. Yeah. The point is, Alan Williams, stand-up guy, I guess. For the most part, it. So when Bruno Koschmeider called him for another Liverpool act to play at the Kaiser, Kel- Kaiser Keller, <laughs> I knew I was going to fuck up something. No, you got it right. Well, the f- second time. Yeah. The Kaiser Keller. The Beatles were not on the top of his list. Or even in the middle, they were pretty close to the bottom. Nevertheless, they found themselves a drummer and Pete Best, and they were on their way to truly make a name for themselves in the seedy bars of Hamburg, Germany. Mm. And again, now I'm fucking hungry. Yeah. Always want a Hamburg. Hamburger sounds nice right now. Mm. We know this trip was full of its own exciting experiences, sex, drugs, booze, and general tomfoolery. Yep. But Paul still took the gig seriously. He knew the German crowd would want to hear more than their standards, so he would take extra time to learn songs like Wooden Heart by Elvis from his GI Blues, and he would even sing a verse in German. Oh. Because he's like, I'm going to play to my crowd. Again, savvy. Even early on in their Beatlemania career, they um, recorded a single in German, didn't they? Yeah, I believe... I think they all have a pretty good base level of German, yeah. but Paul definitely had a decent one. Granted, for sure. everyone in Europe has like a better grasp at a second or even third language than Americans do. Mostly thirds. Yeah. Most most Europeans I know know because at least a lang and two and a half languages because they do it correctly and start having their children learn a second language very early on. Well, I would say that's in part because they are so close to other countries that speak right. other languages. Exactly. But also like it should be mandatory that we all learn Spanish now. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. At this point, guys, come on, what are we fucking doing? Anyway. So since Paul took everything so seriously, it really cheesed his grits to find that Stu was not doing much on his end. They had always gotten along, despite Stu's inability to really play. But now he seemed to have gotten caught up in the art kid scene there and didn't really care much about what happened to the Beatles. I think it's so funny that in Hamburg, it was either like fucking sluts and drug dealers (laughs) (laughs) at the Reaper Bond. Excuse me. Sex workers. Yeah. And drug dealers. No, I'm saying sluts as in you go slut. Yeah, that's great. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Or. Just wanted to clarify. Yeah. Or. It's the art kids. <laughs> it's like, yeah. which group do you belong in? Yeah. Both. Both, I Both. guess. This is where Stu met Astrid and they began an intense and loving relationship. Along with her were other artsy types who John and Stu connected with easily because art kid recognized art kid. Right. Even bloody kid George was getting on well with them. But and it- George had a very good relationship with Klaus Vormann, who yes. is Astrid's friend and yeah, yeah. kind of boyfriend-ish. I until think she t- started until she started dating Stu. Right. I believe he was a photographer. Yes? Yes. Klaus, yeah. T- Klaus took a lot of good pictures of them, I think. And he did He did the cover of Revolver. Yes. Um, that's it. And I believe he did another cover for a George Harrison 
album that I cannot remember, a solo album. Okay. But, like, lifelong friends. Yeah. Like, they made great friends over there. Yeah. And, um, but according to some, they didn't really care for Paul. They kind of oh, thought he no. was a little, like, stuffy. Really? Yeah. I thought they actually really liked Paul. I don't know. Um, In the book I read, so I guess take it with a grain of salt, <laughs> Stu apparently wrote a letter to one of his friends that said, you know... Nobody really cares for Paul. I kind of feel bad for him. Oh, I kind of feel bad for him, too. Yeah, like he felt kind of like. But apparently this attributed to Paul kind of getting more bitter and feeling like he's on the outs. Granted, and getting more frustrated with Stu. I mean, Paul did fail art. So oh, he was not an art kid, really. It was only a matter of time, but Stu eventually made the choice to leave the band and stay with Astrid in Germany. This put Paul strictly on bass duty, which he was not at all pleased with, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, But at least now they had someone with the ability to play that part. Because one part in the book says there was an interview with, with, um, excuse me, Paul, and he said, some people say I tried to kick Stu out so I could play bass. Why the hell would I do that? Nobody (laughs) wants to be the bass player. And I was like, I like bass, Paul. You made a lot of people like bass. But But that's when he was younger. So I think he looks at it differently. And before we leave Hamburg, let's once again examine the tale of arson. Ah, yes. Our favorite. Our favorite tale. It took some time, but German officials eventually realized that George was performing late nights at these clubs under the age of 18. With that, he was swiftly deported and his bandmates were understandably pissed. Yeah. Somebody um, maybe tattled on him. Maybe Bruno. Mm, maybe. Mm, maybe he got a little pissy about things. According to Paul's side, he and Pete decided to show out their frustration with just nailing a condom to the wall and lighting it on fire. Now, they claimed that it barely even lit up, so they decided to just put out whatever burned and they just went to bed. But whatever happened was enough to get Bruno to call the cops and land the two in jail before they were deported back to England. Mm -hmm. So... Burnt con something was set will, on fire. I think we will never know what exactly happened yeah. and to what degree. You're right. But I'm curious about John's story. We'll yes. find out. Maybe soon. we'll find out. Initially, upon arrival, the Beatles were thin, both figuratively and literally. They weren't seeing many offers for gigs, and due to poor diet and manic conditions in Hamburg, Paul looked a little malnourished. They were not eating hamburgers in Hamburg. No, but god damn it, I want a hamburger now. <laughs> They were on a bit of an unintended hiatus, and Paul once again went back and forth on debating his career options. His father was trying to get him to have a day job, but when John called him up with the ultimatum of, you're the in, and you're out, he went all in. Good for him. Yup, smart move. And so they were back at it, slowly building up more and more gigs, and with that, a solid reputation that got them noticed all around Liverpool. And eventually by Brian Epstein, who would become their life-changing manager. And we all know the rest, as they would become the biggest band of the world. Mm-hmm. While some of the Fab Four weren't super keen on the fame, Paul took it in stride. It's not like he thrived on it. Like, he just decided he was going to have fun with it. If it was going to happen, he was going to be okay with it. Exactly. That's what I meant by, like, out of all of the four, I think Paul handled it the best. Yeah. He said, you know what? There's a chance here to have a good time with it. Yeah. I don't love it. And you know what? But I'll do it. You know what? The rest of them should have said the same thing. Honestly, I think I think second to Paul would have been Ringo. Where yeah. he's like, Lord, I guess Ringo was just like, 
I'm here. I'm here. We're going to go Let's with the do flow. this. All right. You yeah. want me to run from people and you go to film it? All right. <laughs> That's you want exactly. me to play in front of this screaming crowd of women? Okay. Yeah, that was Ringo. Ringo. Ringo was the laid back one. I was like, all right, I'll just roll I just, with it. I just picture him going, okay. <laughs> all right. Wow. I don't Shots know why. fired to ENFPs over here. It's adorable. But that's just because every time I see him in this time period, every time I see video of him in this time period in the 50s and 60s, he's just like, okay. that's just, that's what I feel like is going on in his head. It's like yellow submarine in his brain all the time. <laughs> but I think that's why I always liked Ringo, because it's like, I'm like, I get that feel where you're yeah. just like, you know what? Whatever, man. What do you need? Yeah. I'll he's do it. basically the human embodiment of your dog, Godzilla. Aww. Just like, take me wherever you need me. You can put me in this bag. I'll go. <laughs> Yeah, this is right. all right. Fine. You yeah. give me pets? Great. Cool. Yeah, cool. Oh, he is a good dog. Good Ringo. Ringo, Ringo that is. Good Ringo. <laughs> so what's fun is Paul took to wearing fake beards and mustaches, <laughs> and he would create alter egos. He loved it. He fucking loved it. He like loved to buy new wigs and mustaches and shit so he could like go out. That's hilarious. And this is where he started to develop Paul Ramon. Which, if you listen what? to our Ramon episodes, <laughs> is where they got their fucking name. Oh, that's right. Yes, because oh, Paul that's made up an alter ego so people wouldn't know he's Paul McCartney's Paul Ram- Paul Ramon with an E, not without an with e. a fucking Van Dyke beard. Yes, <laughs> Paul Ramon, and he'd wear like I don't know, like a super long wig or something, and just be like, "Oh, what's going on, Paul Ramon? Not Paul <laughs> McCartney and Paul Ramon. Who's Paul McCartney? Oh, what are you?" What are you dames here for? Paul McCartney, who's that? Who's that I'm Paul piece, Ramon. Who's that piece of shit? <laughs> oh, I don't he know. He probably 100% did that, which is <laughs> the fucking lightful. But yeah, so he would do that just to make his way around the crowd so he could still go out and live a life, but get around it. Yeah. And Paul was pretty gracious with fans, too. Like, even though sometimes he just wanted a GTFO, he would kind of do it in, like, a really pleasant, polite way. You know, and he would stop and sign autographs, say hello, and he knew, like, they do owe the fans a little nod and a thank you once in a while. Mm -hmm. He wasn't going to sacrifice his entire life to it, so he kind of would make up his own mind of sometimes being like, all right, I got 45 minutes. This is where I'm going to do my thing. Yeah. This is hilariously different than how the rest of them, especially George, handled it. Because this reminds me, just to, like, juxtapose the two things... At one point during, like, the height of their fame in the early 60s, um, John and George and I think Ringo all went to this incredibly crowded blues club. Oh. And it was kind of like a, a media thing. They, like, made a thing out of the fact that they were going here specifically to meet Jane Mansfield and oh. hang out with her and have a drink and listen to like a blues band play or something. Cool. But because they alerted the media, oh. there was so many fans and reporters and everything and cameramen there that th- th- it was so crowded. Like just watching, pic- just seeing pictures of it gives me anxiety because there were so many people. Oof. And they were in this like clamshell booth with Jane's Manfield, Jane Mansfield and George got so angry that they were taking pictures so much like because there were the flashbulbs. Yeah, the flashbulbs. He was getting so mad 
that he pointed at a photographer and he's like, if you take one more picture, I'm going to throw my drink at you. And the guy just went, click. Why would you do that, though? <laughs> and George got up and tossed his drink at him. Like, that's how I know I could never be paparazzi or a journalist or anything. Because, like, I I am abhorrent to the thought of, like, invading someone's yeah. life like that. Like, I would feel like such an asshole being that much of a horrible intrusion on somebody's life. As a fan of like certain musicians and actors and creators, I am scared to just go up to one of them and say, hi, thank you for your work. I think you're great. Bye. Yeah. Like there which, are, which I argue, I think many would argue isn't the worst thing you could do. And I'm still like, I don't want to bother someone. And also there are only a few people where I would be like truly nervous to talk to them mm. Just because I think I grew up in an area that was a place for celebrities to go buy property and live in Not be to bothered. be anonymous. Mm-hmm. So living there, we all knew like that w- they don't want to be treated as a celebrity. So you right. ignored them. Yeah. And if you were in a position of like working at a job where you are a service person, yeah, then you would be like, okay, you're renting these videos. What's your name? Yeah. (laughs) Like I had to pretend like I didn't know them when I worked at a video store. Treat them with the same general politeness that you treat everybody else with. Right. And I think that's fine. You can go online and you can Google George Harrison throws drink at photographer. Ah. And you can see like the series of photos of him like pointing at the photographer, like, don't take my picture, and then being him like picking up the glass and then him throwing the water at the photographer. It's pretty funny. Whereas I would like to counterbalance that with a story of one time Paul and Linda run into a taxi cab and a fan actually jumped in there with them. Uh huh. They got like a block away and Paul apparently quite politely was like, I'm sorry, you're just, you're going to have to get out of the, get out now. Yeah. Just please get out. Please I get can't, out. I can't be with, you're crazy. You have to Like he out. wasn't mean about it. He was apparently like quite pleasant about it, but like, you're going to have to please get yeah. out of our car now. Thank right. you. Like. Super polite as opposed to. I was going like to toss John, my drink John would have punched her. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> he didn't give a shit. He would have no, fucking punched her. Yes. So out of all the Beatles, Paul handled it quite well. I suppose he was the most polite. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I think out of all the Beatles, he just understood business and yeah. image. And there are like also two, I think. That was part of his personality of just, all right, I can give you this much of me. Mm -hmm. And I get that. Like, I get that as an extrovert. Like, Paul also is an extrovert. Like, there there is definitely enough of you to be able to be like, all right, I can spend 45 minutes to an hour standing here signing autographs, saying hello. Yeah. But, like, once I hit my limit, I'm done. And I'm just going to politely say, all right, that's about it. Bye. Right. And you can't really get mad at a dude for doing that. Hey, he has limits but he's willing to give this much to the people that love him so that's good enough so you had mentioned i believe in the last episode about george that like you kind of pegged paul as a lower class dude trying to pose as an upper class dude Mm -hmm. and i would agree with that sentiment yeah that yes paul was definitely like around the lower middle class and he's 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 a pud He's a Liverpudlian. He is. Well, he is, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would say lower middle class. Mm-hmm. And he was always striving to present as high society. 
And that was pretty prevalent in his relationship with Jane Asher. The relationship that, not obviously we won't get into Beatles stuff, but like this happened during Beatles time that was, I think, very crucial to Paul Mm -hmm. in his development. While the rest of the Beatles were married off, Paul had a long-term relationship with her with throughout most of the 60s. They met when she was 17 and he was about 20. Mm-hmm. Um, she was interviewing them at the Royal Albert Hall. And soon after, a romance blossomed and he quickly took to life with her family, who were rather well off. They introduced him to a world of high society, bougie home living, the arts and theater, and all these things that a basic Liverpudlian could only fantasize about. Oh, he was he was seeing some nice fancy shit. So this was at the same time that like John was just... with Cynthia. Mm-hmm. George had probably just around there gotten with Patty. Yeah, he was at least dating Patty. I don't think they were married yet. And Ringo was with Maureen. Maureen. I think Ringo and Maureen might have been married at this point, okay. or like just about to get married. And there was a lot about their relationship, Paul and Jane's, that worked really well. I mean, they loved going on random vacations together and enjoyed a lot of pleasures of an upper class lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Like, Paul was all about it. He was all in. Oh, yeah. I feel like bougie teas from India and just like going to the opera. He was here for it. Paul always saw himself in a higher class than he was. Yes. And always kind of knew he would be in that higher class simply mm-hmm. because he would probably have a lot of money. Like, you well, can buy yourself into that class. And I guess there is to something to be extent. said about, like, if you imagine yourself there, you can eventually make it there. Don't dream it. Be it. Be it. I mean, like, what is that book? The Secret? Isn't that the whole point of The Secret? Oh, my God. That fucking book. <laughs> but you're right. Like, let's just let's just quote Frankenfurter. Yeah, like, don't be it. <laughs> Or don't dream it, be it. Yeah, like, The Secret basically just stole from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, yeah. Maybe it is. But, like, made it into a cult and also there's murder. Oh, that's that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but, however, there, there are little things that were slowly going to break Jane and Paul apart. Because, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, in case you don't know who Paul ends up marrying, it's, it's not, not her. Jane. <laughs> not her. No. So, Jane is an actress. She has worked in film since she was a child, as well as landing parts and plays here and there. So she had a very active theater life as well. Um, She was very passionate about her career and had no intentions of stopping. However, like we've seen in previous episodes with other Beatles, (laughs) Paul was raised in northern England, which can be a tad bit misogynistic. A little bit. A little bit. He wanted to marry her. But did not want her to act anymore. This sounds familiar. I know. Instead, planning on her to bear their children and take care of the home. Yeah, no. Mm. Girl had a career before you, Paul. Before you even sauntered into her life. But Jane had her ideas of what she wanted Paul to be, too. And Pothead was not one of them. (laughs) The Beatles experimented with drugs, especially marijuana. Oh, yes. Like, as we all know. And she wanted her man to have no part of it. So as long as she was around, he kind of refrained from that stuff. Okay. Which some say is why it took him so long to even get onto the LSD train. He was the last Beatle to try it. And he finally did it well after everybody else. And not even with them, but an artist friend of his. Yeah, and that was like the one time that George and John actually kind of bonded a little bit was when they were doing LSD. Right. 
And I'm sure one day they're like, hey, Ringo, do this. He's like, all right. Okay. All right. I'm here for it. Uh, There had been a few times after this where Paul had been quite vocal about his drug usage, almost as a way to show off like his invulnerability to get in trouble for it, as many others would. Like the Rolling Stones. I think Mm -hmm. the Who got caught for it. Like a lot of rock bands or other like normal people were getting caught for it. But the Beatles weren't. Weird. It's because they're the Beatles. I think it's because they were singing quite quote unquote innocent songs, whereas the Who wasn't. Or the Rolling Stones. Or the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones were the bad boys. They're bad. But Paul would run around and tell everyone how great LSD is, and it can hey open our minds up because we only use 10% of our brains. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for perpetuating that lie. Wait. Wait. <laughs> After a while, John must have lost his eyes in the back of his head from rolling them so much, <laughs> having to hear the band member who was the most reluctant acid user to now become its spokesperson. Oh my god, I'm sure he was just like lighting his own pants on fire, just like so upset over it. <laughs> I can't fucking hear him talk about acid anymore. He didn't even like it. He wouldn't do it because his woman wouldn't let him. The fuck, Paul? Fucking pussy whipped asshole. Oh my god, like, it, this is the one, one of the few times I feel like you and John would sit next to each other and be like, can you get a load of this fucking guy? This fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is where you laugh so much about John because you know John was like, fucking seriously. Yeah. Fine, like, Paul, you're the new spokesman on LSD. If John wasn't such an asshole, I would have gotten along famously with him we would have been practically the same person if he wasn't psychotic but we'll get I mean, into if he that was later. medicated but we'll get Maybe. into that we'll get into that some other time mm-hmm. also unlike the other band members though the home paul bought for himself and jane was more like a really really big house than a mansion uh-huh. like all the other three beatles were like let me get the biggest fucking place in the world and paul's like well i want, well, I mean, I want a house ken Fawns was pretty small was it? It was it was small. It was like a, a one story. It was a small mansion. It was a one story <laughs> bungalow. It really wasn't that big. Oh. But then he went and bought a fucking castle with a Matterhorn replica. Yeah. <laughs> there's also the Matterhorn. There's, there's also the Matterhorn. There's the matter of the Matterhorn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, God, that fucking book I read. Apparently, though, at one point. Paul's being interviewed and everyone's kind of trying to see if he's moving in with Jane, but like all the Beatles kind of had to still act eligible, especially Paul. Yeah. Who was still technically quote unquote the cute eligible. One? The, el- the cute one. This, I don't know. The not married one. The not married one. Yeah. So he had to make it seem like he wasn't marrying Jane Asher and they were interviewing him and like, oh, why, why this house? And he's like, I like big houses. It's just, I've always loved houses. I have a lot of like, money. He goes on this rant about loving houses. It's fucking hilarious. You know, they provide shelter. I actually and, like... And uh, keep you out of the rain. Yep. And, uh, and uh, I can have... I can sleep in my bed in it. I can have kitty cats in it. And, and a um, dog. And a dog. I'm going to name a Martha. Uh, Write a song about her. You know, chickens. If I'm, <laughs> they can be in the house. That's a, that's no. They can be in the garage, <laughs> the garage, the garage. They can be in the garage. That, yeah, that's that's about it. <laughs> that's beautiful. I love it. 
However, Jane and Paul would end up with very busy schedules as he was working on music, she'd be off working in theater companies, and leaving them not a ton of time together in said home. After a handful of Jane's trips away from home, Paul really stopped giving a shit what she thought of his drug usage, and she was really upset that he had taken acid trips. Like, I she's mean, that girlfriend's like, and now why you had to drink beer? And he's like, I fucking love beer. Why are you always, and, like, hanging out with your friends? And then he's that guy who's like, can you just fucking quit your job and have my babies? Why do you want a career? Like, they were wow. fucking terrible for each other. But they're, like, terrible in general? Yeah. Like, yeah. this whole thing was just the fucking worst. <laughs> This all sounds terrible. What was even more upsetting was probably all the affairs, though, that he was having. Oh, that could be it, too. <laughs> For what it's worth, Jane was also having affairs. Weren't they all? So they were all just fucking other... Like, they didn't like each other's hobbies. They How didn't could, like wait. that they were fucking other people. How did no other Beatles fuck her, too? And, like... She was too busy off fucking other actors. Oh. Yeah, I got she you. Act- she still had a career. That's She's why. St- yep. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There it is. It was a relationship that just wasn't built to last, especially after Paul had a chance meeting with an American photographer who happened to be exploring London with the band The Animals while on assignment to take photos for a book called Rock and Other Four-Letter Words. (laughs) Rock and Other Things. (laughs) Rock Stuff. (laughs) Her name was Linda Eastman, a woman who came from a privileged life but denied her family's assistance when she decided to move out on her own as a single mom to become a professional photographer. I put that in there because I just want you all to get a tiddly bit into knowing that Linda's a fucking boss bitch. Yeah. Isn't she from the Eastman Kodak family? Yes. Yes. Like grand or great grandparents. Right. Actually, her Beast? father or grandfather's last name is actually Epstein. But because they moved to Ellis Island, they're like, too many Jews naming you Eastman. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, also, it's almost like we have a problem with that. <laughs> based in Rochester, mm. New York. Yep, they're from New York. Uh, but I believe her and her family lived in New York City. Her yep. dad was a very well-to-do lawyer. Yes. But like, she got married at a young age, moved to Arizona. Arizona. Who Arizona. goes to Arizona? That's all how we. That's how we all talk in Arizona. So. Her husband was just off too much, and it was just like, nah, this ain't going to work. So she took the daughter, and they got divorced, and she moved back to New York City. Her parents were like, here, we'll support you. And she's like, no, I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to fucking Dolly Parton 9 to 5 this shit. And she did. But she also somehow managed to become a photographer and make a living? Oh, first, not not off the bat. Okay. She started to do that. Because like Paul, Linda has a really good way of talking to people and making friends where you need to. Mm-hmm. And basically, she... I think she was just doing like not quite receptionist, but like office work. And oh, then good for her. at night she would go off and try to like do photography at like shows and things. And she'd get to know the other photographers. And then she slowly got into the scene. And that's actually how she ended up touring London with the animals is because she became friends with them as she ended up doing an assignment photographing them. Awesome. So again, like Linda and Paul, here you go. Peas in a pod. Know how to talk to people yeah. and know how to be savvy. And she is a boss bitch. And Good she is a boss bitch. I so I really her. hope that when they got together, she was like, "No, I'm gonna keep my fucking job. Fuck you." I I don't even think there was like even. I think that they just were coincided so well 
There was just like, yep. And I, I will get into more of the workings of their relationship in the next episode. But yeah. let me get more into like yeah. how this even happened. So that night she met Paul. They were both at a show. Their eyes met and they had some light conversation. Nothing too deep, but enough to stick into each other's minds. And soon after she was still in London, she decided she'd show her portfolio to Brian Epstein to see if she could get a chance to take some photos of the Beatles. Nice. But he wasn't in. His assistant Peter Brown was. And he took a look and was very impressed so he told her to attend a photo call for the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club, Hearts Club Band. So, like, where her and a few other, like, a dozen other photographers would be to take pictures mm-hmm. to kind of promote the album. Mm-hmm. Again, she and Paul conversed. She got some great shots of everybody. However, they never really got a chance to meet up again. So she flew back to America, assuming that that was just, like, my one brush with the Beatles. Aww. But fate be a wacky bitch. <laughs> They happened to cross paths again nearly a year later when John and Paul went to New York City to do some business on behalf of Apple Corp's U.S. branch. Mm -hmm. And from there came a series of meetups whenever he was in the U.S. They exchanged phone numbers. He'd be in L.A. She'd fly out. They'd hang out. Like, whenever he was in America, like, Linda was on his list of people to see. And they kind of began this affair. But Paul and Jane were still attempting to keep their relationship afloat. And he was still seeing women even outside of Linda. Yeah. Paul's, like, feeling his oats right now. This is, like, his last last great splooge. Just trying to get his beak wet. He's getting... He's a baby bird trying to get his beak wet, and he is like, let me put my dick in every nest I see. Yes. But after a while, enough was enough. Some say the final straw for Jane and Paul was when she caught him in bed with another American named Francie Schwartz. Uh, would be. Maybe. For, like, anybody. But... Some say that, like, she's known that they were having an affair and had seen them in bed before, seen them together before. It's a weird, I think their relationship is a weird dichotomy of layers that, like, no one's ever going to truly understand because it's a lot of he said, she said, they said, he said, over there, they said that, over that person said that. I feel like a whole lot of, like, weird English guilt Mm -hmm. that's like, oh, no, you need to make this marriage or relationship work. Yes, that is 100%. They wanted to break up. But it's like nobody could stop fucking each other. Yes. And that's 100% what happened is I think they wanted to break up, but they didn't know how because you're right. English guilt. Yeah, it's the English guilt. I feel like is a thing. It's a real thing. It's and it's not you're not wrong. And it's rooted in just like the prudish church. It's rooted, it's rooted in the it's church. It's kind of rooted in the church. Like, you just need to be prim and proper and shut the fuck up about any indiscretions you might make. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, fuck that. Yeah, nah. Yeah. So they eventually did finally split. Paul continued to see Francine and other women, but he couldn't get Linda out of his mind. He had thought about it for a long time and finally decided that he was sick of running around in these relationships. They're not going to last. What is he fucking doing? Because Linda's the goat. I'm not saying she's the goat, but she is the greatest of all time. Yeah. (laughs) She is. It was actually in his own song to John's son, Julian, Hey Jude, where he realized that he was in fucking idiot. (laughs) You have found her. Now go and get her. There you go. There you fucking go. He, He called Linda and asked her to come to England. And she did. And she didn't leave his side again. Aww. They eventually married in March 1969. It was a quiet little wedding without his bandmates, a sure sign that their fallout was imminent. I really didn't realize that they married so early. I was going to say so late. Oh. I mean, considering, compared to the other Beatles. 
Yeah, I didn't realize that they were together for so long. Right? Oh, yeah. They were together. Like, that was the real deal. Yeah. I'll get into the next episode, but Paul and Linda were the real deal. Yeah. Like John's relationship with Yoko had changed him, Linda changed Paul as well. Both women seemed to have captivated their men's hearts and gave them partners that they always wanted. Not just as a family, but as artists that would work together for decades to come. By 1970, the Beatles would break up, as Paul would announce to the world that April. From this, there would be hurt feelings and painful lawsuits, a lot of it brought on by Paul himself. But he had his reasons and stood by his instincts. And these reasons and instincts we will get into on the next episode. Oh. Cliffhanger! Yeah. Yeah. Really stallone all over the place here. Stallone. <laughs> With the cliffhangers. <laughs> I see what you did there. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so that's part one of Paul McCartney. Intense. I just got In- through the Beatles Intensity, years. intensities. I set up his relationship with Linda, which you will discover next time is so fucking important to yeah. his career and who he is as a person. And especially very important to his post-Beatles career. Oh, Very, crucial. very much. Yeah, crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, um, you're right. The Beatles are humans. Quite human. With things that you like and things that you hate. Yes. But they're still human. And it's making me think a lot about writing people off. Because people are far more complex than we give them credit for, especially when they are celebrities and especially when they are iconic celebrities yeah, have been around for a very long time, for generations. So, and literally half a century. So, mm-hmm. so analyzing them like this kind of blows your mind. Yeah. And makes it really hard to put them into perspective. Yeah. In a way. Because, like, there's just so much. And, like, we're still just looking at them through a lens, through a filter, through a filter, through another lens, through yeah. another filter. So, I mean, this is just us trying to tell their stories to the best of our ability. And humanize them. Yeah. Because they are human. Mm-hmm. And they make mistakes, but they also but, make some great things. But also people have just put them on pedestals for so many fucking years. Yeah. And without really even diving into why they should be on a pedestal. Should they be on this pedestal? I don't think anyone should be on a pedestal. I don't think so either. Don't put that pussy on a pedestal. So... <laughs> um, but like, I just feel like I would prefer to knock the Beatles down a few pegs because people have idolized them for so long. And I want to get to know them as humans, as yeah. people with actual emotions and motives and, you know, reasons for why they did what they did. Right. Because... I mean, it influences the music. It influences their work. Yeah. And it makes it even more meaningful. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, again, too, like, I don't know why I never even thought of that. But hey, Jude, I'm like, he did write it for Julian. But the lyrics are not really about a But they're also about a very child. much about him falling in love with Linda and realizing, yeah. oh, no, this is it. Yeah. Oh, no. And that's really sweet. Like, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, like, like you ha- he had... He had a, he had a lot of crazy ass relationships. Like I didn't even get into half of his crazy ass relationships. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Um, I just talked mostly about Jane Asher because I thought 
that was a big influence was, yeah for that was the biggest one and right? then now like linda but he had so many slews of relationship and like it's really sweet to think about how he meets linda and he's like nah this is it good for and him. i'm gonna let her know this yeah. is love and i'm gonna just say so yeah he huey lewister oh real if hard this is it he let her know he let her know Oh, good for him. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. Yay. Love you and appreciate you. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys are learning. As we're we learning are. so fucking much. God, I can't wait to be that guy at parties again someday when we can have parties um, again. Pushes glasses up. Let me actually tell you about actually. like how disregarded Ringo is and how unfair that is. Because <laughs> I've got to do it right now. And if you want to have more opportunities to push up some glasses and tell your friends what's what, you can listen to our other episodes on other musicians and artists and bands and albums. Go to our website, rockcandypodcast.com. You can just listen to it straight there. You can also just find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever the fuck you're listening to right now. Because you're listening to us now. So you know where to find us. Yeah, I don't know why I'm telling you. Whatever. It's fine. But you can also find us on the social meds on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, we're trying to get better at engaging and would love if you wanted it's to hard. engage with us. It's hard. You can also toss us an email from the website and like let us know if you have any fun stories about yeah. the musicians we're talking about. Have any suggestions for future episodes. I actually love when people suggest stuff because I'm like, oh, don't you worry. That <laughs> is in the works. I got a long list. We do. And we actually are don't worry We're trying we are trying to work through it <laughs> we are very much like while we love this series on the beatles we are looking to the horizon like oh i can't fucking wait to do this episode can't wait for the second half of february oh boy we got some good shit coming yes. up yes yeah and on top of that if you want to give us some of your monies or if you don't you don't have to but if you, you want to, to but if you feel like it if you want to you can go to our patreon at patreon.com slash rock candy podcast and give us some of your monies every month in return, we will give you some swag and some shout outs and a bonus episode, which yeah. is going to come out this Very week. soon. Yeah. Soon, soon. This week. Actually, in fact, I would say um, the only time we shamelessly bash people and don't care about their personalities is on our is Patreon. on our very drunken Patreon because we'll finish this beer, open another beer, record the Patreon. Yeah. So you get us pretty uh, uncut, uncensored. Yeah. And also, if you want to get even more swag, you can go to our merch page. At Tee Public. At Tee Public. Because Tee Public is better than Tee Spring. It is, though. Sure is. And you can get a whole bunch of stuff. We have a brand new design. Yeah. Ringle dingle I made a wrinkle dingle <laughs> design. You I can hope get it on a like shirt, it. on a mug, on a travel cup, on a wall hanging, maybe. I don't remember. I don't pillow? know if I said that. I don't a remember pillow, what we made. A mug. A child's onesie, maybe. I, I don't think know. I definitely have the child's onesie <laughs> selected. You yeah. can get your you baby. You can get everything. Yo, if you fucking get your baby a onesie, please. Please tell us. Send us that photo. Send us a photo so we can like put it on the internet. People will buy that. These I will people make like that. babies and pets. I will make that our fucking Facebook banner. Nobody likes our ugly mugs. They yeah. like your babies and pets. Yes, please. <laughs> so yeah, do yeah. that. Do that indeed. And, you know, please come in next week for the finale of Paul. It's going to be a lot. Yeah. But it'll be it'll be fun. 
It's going to be fun. We get to talk about wings. Jet. And we get to do that a lot. Even more than we did this time. Oh, I'm never going to stop. Yeah. And until then, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. And party on, you crazy kids out there. Why? Stop. I can't stop singing this song.